0: Hi, welcome to Around Town, where we seek to discover insights into places, events, topics, and issues that you want to know about in our great city. I'm your host, Nick Burkfeld, with producer Chuck Luck. Today, we'll be talking with Lauren Gardugno, the president and CEO of the Ports to Plains Alliance. Thanks so much for coming on today. Thank you, Nick, for having me. What's your connection to Lubbock? I did come to Lubbock in 1982, after graduating from
1: high school up in the Panhandle, Borger, Texas. And... Chose Texas Tech as my college of choice to study engineering. And part of it too was I loved the game of baseball. Thought I still could play back then. And so I came out here and I walked on the Tech baseball program back in 1982. And Coach Segris was the coach back in the day. And, and being left handed, being a pitcher. You get that little extra look sometimes, right? Because there's not that many left-handed pitchers. So I've got the chance to play a little bit in the fall ball with them. And we got to the black-red game there at Christmas. And, I mean, I made through three cuts. I said, well, you know, maybe I got a chance here. Just there before Christmas break, Coach Seegers called me in there and said, Lauren, we're going to have to cut (laughs) you. but they had suggested that I maybe consider going and pitching at Ranger Junior College if I wanted to do that. But at the time, Nick, I was already semester deep into engineering classes, and I knew that someday that would put food on the table. So I said, well, I thanked them and and went a different way. Stayed in Lubbock, went to school. What was Lubbock like
0: when you first came here?
1: 82 to 86. It was a good time to be at Tech, and since I love sports, I followed people like Bubba Jennings and basketball, you know, and some of that kind of stuff. We had a, you know, don't throw Billy Joe, don't throw Billy Joe football program. And I remember taking mom and dad to the first game, family night there in the fall, and we were on the top deck of that Jones Stadium, which looks nothing like it does today, but SMU, Pony Express, Craig James, Eric Dickerson, number two team in the nation, and I remember Texas Tech had them tied up, 17 or 17 or something like that with about, you know, in the last minute, and then everybody was just jumping up and down, and then we watched them make a lateral throw on the kickoff and return it for a touch down and beat us, you know? So those were the Texas Tech days. You know, I eventually later became what they call a RA dorm mother for three years there on the campus. And I was placed in an upper graduate dorm. Does not even exist today. It was Gaston Hall. In fact, it's torn down today to make room for some new stuff. Those were some of my Texas Tech
0: experiences. As you were set to graduate, what were you thinking about and what you wanted to do next?
1: Studying civil engineering. That was a weird deal, how I got to civil engineering. Tech back then, when you choose a field to study, you're over in the chemistry building in 1982, and you were in these lines because you had these punch cards. I was reading a book on engineering. thought I wanted to be an industrial engineer, maybe systems engineering. I thought, well, you know, I may well go down that path. In junior high and high school, my dad was a school teacher, but he was a carpenter by necessity. Trying to make a living, teaching school, then you you work all summer, and you're know, building houses. My father was a very proficient carpenter, very good. He could rough in a house, he could finish a house, he could do cabinet work. You name it, he could do it, and he's very good at it. So I grew up around residential construction. So I said, you know, hey, it's civil engineering, it's about building structures or highways. Or so I picked that as my field of study. You know, every summer I would go home and work in border. I worked with my father. We would do a lot of housing construction. But one summer, my dad was being a school teacher and former coach. He was over at the high school baseball field. The local resident engineer for the Texas Highway Department, Jay Hawley. he had a son going through the high school system. And so dad struck up a conversation with Jay. And Jay said, what's well, Lawrence studying at Tech? And he goes, well, he's studying civil engineering. And Jay goes, well, that's what we do. He said, well, is he looking for summer work? He said, well, he'll come work with me, my father said. And Jay goes, uh, come over and apply for our highway department. So I did. First summer out of college, 83, 84, started going home and working for the highway department. And every summer, they gave me more responsibilities, and I was learning a lot. It was in the field of civil engineering. And by the time I graduated, December of 87, I knew I wanted to work transportation. I had planned on going back in the Enriola district and work up there, but I was doing some part-time preaching. Abilene had recruited me to do a little preaching in a small congregation in the Abilene area. And I met my future bride, my wife, Ketta, from Winters, Texas. So I ended up not going to work in Amarillo District. I ended up going to work for highway department in the Ambling District.
0: What were the kinds of activities that you would do for the highway department there?
1: I was very fortunate. It was kind of a unique time. The highway department, a lot of the workers were elderly guys. You know, they come out of World War II and a lot of A&M boys and stuff, and they were going to work for the highway department. So these guys I learned under... They had 35, 36 years for the department. And they took me under their wing. They would teach me things. I was very fortunate. We had some bridges we had to build up there in the Panhandle, and I was fortunate to work summers on those bridge projects. And we had a brand new farm to market road we had to build over in uh, the corner of the Texas Panhandle over by Miami, Texas, in that area. And I was a chance one summer to lay out a full survey and lay out a whole road. One summer, this is funny, Jay Holly goes, Lauren, he goes, haven't you ever done bricklaying before? Because he knew I helped my dad in construction. And I go, yeah. He said, well, why don't you take a couple of these summer hands? We need a." Rebrick our planter in front of the office. We got out there, and I remember, you know, watching that bricklayer use a string, you know, in the level and, you know, and strike that mud. So, you know what? We laid a silly flower bed 30 years ago, guys, and so it's still there. thought I'm pretty good at bricklaying. Not much civil engineering there, Nick, but anyway, that's what you get.
0: (laughs) What goes into building a road, all the various processes?
1: First of all, you know, you have to identify the roadway features that you're trying to build on. You take a look out there on a blank horizon, and You say, well, you know, there's these gullies here and these valleys and these rises here. And the first thing you got to do is you got to say, you know, where does it make sense that, you know, you can lay a road out that you don't have to cut a lot of dirt out of the side of a hill or bring in a lot of field dirt to bring it up. So you got to conceptualize what that road would look like, maybe, first of all. And there's not a lot of that being done this day because a lot of the roads are already built. Back in the day when we were building new roads, it was kind of exciting to get a chance to think about, you know, how does that lay out? Interstate 27 wasn't even built at the time I started working, you know, from back there, particularly from Emerald to Canyon to Lubbock. Some of that interstate wasn't even built at the time. That starts there. Use some survey skills and and map you out, kind of a, a visualization of what you want that road to look like. And you lay that on the ground and you're cutting dirt here and you're filling dirt there to kind of level it out. A lot of equipment, a lot of dozers, a lot of dirt packers. You know, you're bringing in dirt. You got to have certain type of dirt, bring in some good Caliche road building material, strike you out a road and build it.
0: How do you reflect on the experience of moving to Abilene, starting a family there? I had a choice
1: where I could start my work. I was either going to be Snyder, Texas or Abilene, Texas or uh, Hamlin, Texas of all. That was the three openings. I wanted to go to Abilene because that's where that congregation was and I was helping out a little bit. I'd already met my bride, she was a school teacher, education major, and then later she went and got her counseling master's, and later she ended up getting her Ph.D. in education administration and has had a very good career in education administration. I married a farmer's daughter. Not only am I thinking about living in Abilene, but I'm thinking about, okay, how do I get 35 miles south of here and start figuring out how to help my father-in-law farm and ranch? The joke there was, is when I graduated from Tech, my wife thought, well, I'm going to buy me a new car. At the time, I thought Honda Accord, that'd be kind of a cool car to have, and I thought I'm going to get me one of those. I met Keta, and first thing she said, you're going to buy a Honda? I said, no, we're not. We're going to buy a pickup truck. And I said, what? Pickup truck? Sure enough, I don't know, about eight or nine or ten of those pickup trucks later, never owned a Honda Accord. But uh, that's kind of how you start establishing yourself. Our first daughter came in 1990, two years after we married, and Amber Lauren is her name. And she's a band director for the Abilene High Band Program. Just got named first woman in the history of the Abilene High Band. You know, that's kind of cool. And then, lo and behold, we thought, well, we'd have one three years later, and, you know, the next one didn't come till 14 years later. So you just... Thank the Lord that you have what you have when you get it. I took a little 15-month hiatus, early 90s. Ken and I went to College Station to get that education out of the way. But then we came back to Abilene. And in 99, Techstot sent me out to Midland-Odessa. The district engineer position came open. And so I went out there to be the district engineer out in Midland-Odessa. And that's where I raised my oldest. And then my youngest was born while we were out there.
0: And we'll be right back with Lauren to continue our conversation on Around Town on 89.1. Welcome back to Around Town. We're speaking with Lauren Garduño, the president and CEO of the Ports to Plains Alliance. What was the decision making that led you to go to Odessa? So in 1999, I had been with the department
1: full times for about 11 years, trying to advance my career, you know, in all kinds of different ways. One of those advancements, of course, was the decision to go off to school again, get two master's degrees. I do think the advanced education was important. There are several lessons I learned growing up that I still remember and I tried to take to heart as I developed my skills, whether it be management skills or whatever. It starts all the way back to high school. I had a high school football coach. He was in Lubbock for a while, Butch Anderson. He was our border bulldog coach back in the 80s, and you won't believe it looking at me now, Nick, the way I'm built today, but I was actually played quarterback in high school. That left-handed throwing arm is what they had me for, but we got in the football field, and he would yell at the linemen. He'd get in their face in the linemen, but it was the quarterbacks. He wouldn't yell out in front of everybody, right? But his philosophy was, he says, you know, if I'm going to praise somebody, I'm going to praise somebody in public. If I need to critique or if I need to constructive criticism somebody, I'll do that in private. That's so the way handle the quarterbacks even that time, too. I said, okay. So you know what? That actually played well even into the, the business field, interaction with your employees, positive feedback in the public. And then if you need to do some constructive building with them, you know, go take it privately. I've always tried to practice that. I think that paid off for me. Other things you learn is people have done this stuff before you. It's not like you're the first one to invent management or managing people and, and those kinds of things. And, and one of the lessons I learned from a gentleman, he's no longer alive now, but he said, Lauren, he said, you're going to see good management practices, you're going to see bad management practices. He said, what you do is you learn from both. You observe both of them. He said, the bad ones, you learn from them, and you just make sure you don't copy them. Good ones, copy them. Repeat them. Don't be afraid. Good piece of advice, too. And a lot of times, you just got to take time and stop and taste the bread, so to speak. Get around and observe, really, you know, what's going on. I'm an engineer by trade, but I would spend time behind the fence with my operations guys, you know, and my equipment guys, and my fleet guys. And I think they appreciate the fact that, you know, he's not too busy you know, engineering the road, but he's willing to take time to go back and see how you build this road, too. How do you operate on this road? And so I think I gained a lot of benefit from that. So when it came time to step into leadership, Nick, Odessa opened up, and I took it. And I was young. My executive director was an older gentleman. And I was really surprised he put me in the position, to be honest with you. I was about 34 years old in a district engineer position with Texas Highway Department, and you just didn't see that at that position. They had some faith in me. I appreciate Mr. Hild for having that faith in me. And that was one of the things he said, Lauren. He said, I'm going to send you out to Odessa. He said, they've got a really great maintenance program out there in that district. Don't go out there and screw it up. That was what he said to me. Yes, sir. Okay. You know, and you go out there and you make sure you don't screw up his maintenance program he's got out there. But we had about 340 people that reported to me. We had about nine, ten counties that I oversaw, big district, went all the way down to the Mexican border, actually, in Sanderson, Texas, and down close to the Big Bend country. But it also covered all that Permian Basin. During that time frame, the oil field hadn't blown up like it did today. Different model today, trying to manage it than it would be back in those days. And we were also in a situation back in those days where we didn't have any money, really, highway money, and we were scrambling for that. But we were able to get some things done. One of the things that did come on my plate, in 1998, this to Plains Corridor, it was stood up by a group here in Lubbock that stood up the Ports to Plains uh, Transportation Advocacy Group and Corridor. And really what they were doing was trying to promote a four-lane divided highway all the way from Laredo all the way up to Canada, right through the middle of Lubbock, Memorello, the center state. It went down into the Permian Basin. Now, the interesting thing about that, there was a lot of politics determining where the route needed to be. And there was all kinds of studies done in the 90s to see where that route needed to be south of here. Right? If you look at a map of the Ports of Plains today, you got two routes down there. What happened was, is after the highway department studied it, they didn't want to be the political bad guy and say, we're going to pick this route over that route. There were three routes suggested. One of them was 84 out of Lubbock, going down to uh, Snyder and Roscoe, going through the Abilene area. The other one was uh, the Big Spring, 87, going down to Big Spring, La Mesa. The other one was actually um, the 349. Actually, there was one also identified 385, coming out of Lubbock over to uh, you know Seminole and going down and hitting Odessa on that side. In the end of the day, they settled on two alignments. Two alignments was the Big Spring, 87 route. And then the 349, that goes out of La Mesa over to Midland-Odessa. The reason you had to include Midland-Odessa is because it's a large population center. It's kind of like, you know, we're connecting a a transportation corridor to these, what I call these uh, oases. The Midland-Odessa's, you got the Lubbock's, you got the Amarellos, San Angelo's. And so as a district engineer in Odessa, I then had the good fortune of then trying to start working with Ports Plains people. What are we going to do about 349? What are we going to do when we come into Midland? And one of the big projects that we had to do in Midland was what we call the uh, Midland Reliever Route. It was just north of Midland on 349. It swings back around to the west, ties into 1788 there at the airport, and eventually I-20 at the airport. And I'm telling you guys, back in the day, I was trying to get that reliever route off the ground without any money. Highway Department was saying, are we going to maintain your potholes? are we going to reduce congestion in the big cities like you know Austin and Dallas-Fort Worth and Houston or are we going to build these connectivity corridors in West Texas i'll just tell you West Texas connectivity corridors just didn't win out you know you got to maintain your system and you you got to reduce congestion but we did some planning work i got two counties Midland County and Martin County over there in Stanton i got them to agree to get some right-of-way donated in some places and buy some right away, and we were able to at least get a partial route built called the, on the Midland Reliever. Today it's called the Tom Craddock, local representative there, and they put his name on it. And why is that important? That's important because the Ports to Plains corridor actually runs 349 down to Midland and it takes off there on the Craddock Reliever and runs over to the airport. Ties in at 20. So now, going forward in the future, when I'm trying to get money to build out this future corridor, you know, we're going to have to take it down that existing alignment, which we've got the right of way now already purchased, you know, to do that. So, you know, 10 years out there working on different projects. Probably would have stayed out there, gentlemen, for a little bit longer. My oldest daughter graduated from Midland Greenwood and I would have stayed there. But uh, my wife's father, that farmer and rancher in South Abilene, cancer eventually got him. Abilene district came open. Said it's time for me to get back to Abilene. and. That's kind of was a genesis of my time in Odessa.
0: District engineers in Texas have a large amount of responsibilities, both in managing individuals, planning, aligning stakeholders to get agreement. What were some aspects of that work that you really thrived at?
1: I think some of the greatest times I had doing that job was the uh, interaction with our other government officials, you know, cities and counties, trying to uh, build a transportation system in West Texas. I think at some point in some time, I think I have been pretty effective. And gentlemen, at times I've had to get into the living rooms of an elderly lady and convince her that I need to take her land for a highway project. A lady that was not really looking forward to me taking her land for a highway project and at the end of the day signs off on me taking her land for a highway project. When I say take, we bought it, fair price. You're dealing with sensitive issues, you know, when you're talking about eminent domain and for the good of the public, we're going to have to build this road through your backyard and stuff. You know, I think one of the things that I've been able to do effectively is just tell it in a way that maybe uh, is human to them and understandable to them and get a point across to, to be able to uh, move a project down the road, whether it's dealing with the public on that end of it or whether it's uh, trying to get two cities to uh, collaborate together. Now, I'll give you an interesting story about that. Lubbock is Lubbock. Lubbock doesn't have to compete with another city, Lubbock's size, 10 miles down the road from here. You go out to Midland, and Midland is Midland, but guess what? 17 miles to the west is Odessa, and they're both similar-sized cities, and they're big cities. And whatever you do as a transportation engineer in Midland, guess what you got to do in Odessa? You've just basically got to do it. That still exists today. Friday night lights, 17 miles away, the football field, you know, how they care for each other on a football field is the way they care for each other in a business setting, even in highways, right? Once in a while, they get together and they play together. And that was one of my jobs as a district engineer. I had to get them every once in a while to play together so that we could get a project off the board. And then we were able to build some things in Midland Odessa when sometimes it was hard because Odessa wanted their priority over here and Midland wanted their priority over there. But we were able to get some things done in collaboration. People talk about the rivalry between those two cities and 17 miles apart. I grew up in Border, Texas, Phillips 66, Corporate Oil. If you drive about 20 miles to the east of Border, you run into Pampa, Texas. And guess what? Back in the 60s and 70s when I was growing up, those two cities did not like each other. Same thing, corporate oil basically with independent oil over there in Pampa. Pampa's kind of independent. The same mindset in Odessa, independent versus corporate. Those two mindsets just make for a very interesting time, either on a football field or in a boardroom trying to solve a transportation
0: problem, you know, for the two cities. And we'll be right back with Lauren to continue our conversation on Around Town on 89.1. Welcome back to Around Town. Our guest today is Lauren Garduño, the president and CEO of the Ports to Plains Alliance. Previously, we talked a little bit about Ports to Plains coming into existence in 1998. The idea has really evolved a lot. How did you get involved and how has Ports to Plains changed over time? Ports to Plains, the organization itself is an advocacy organization and you're advocating for better roads,
1: particularly to support trade. You look at a history of highways in the United States, interstate corridors, are east-west corridors. Eisenhower came along in the 50s after spending time in World War II and said, you know, those Germans know how to build a highway, and particularly to move their military. But It was the interstate and military highway act. It includes the word military in it, 1955. When they did that, you know, now you're building interstates. And if you look at a map today, you have a lot of interstates east-west. You don't have a lot north and south. Our corridor right here in Portston Plains that people have been advocating for improving the network. If you look back 120 years, it was cattle drives from the border, Mexican border up into Kansas and Colorado. You know, that's it. 963 miles of this corridor resides in Texas alone. When I say the ports to plains, I'm talking about the whole 2,300-mile corridor. So nearly 40% of this corridor is in Texas. Ports to plains portion ties off at Lyman, Colorado, on the eastern range of Colorado, hits uh, 70 East and West Highway. From there, it picks up the Heartland Expressway and goes north into Nebraska, South Dakota, up into Rapid City area. That's called the Heartland Expressway, four-lane divided, future. And then from there, it's the Theodore Roosevelt Expressway, another advocacy group, picks up the corridor and takes it all the way up to New Montana and the Port of Raymond. That is the Ports to Plains Trade Alliance. That's what we're kind of all about as a group. The way Texas was going to build it is after the interstates were built in Texas, including this I-27 that comes out of Amarillo down to Lubbock, finished in like 92, you know, all of a sudden, the highway department said, what's our next evolution of corridors? They came up with the Texas Trunk System. Texas Trunk System is about 11,000 miles of highways connecting cities of about 30,000 in population greater, trying to improve four-lane divided network. Forced Plains is just one part of 11,000 miles of highways. So you have to compete with all that funding to build out. And in early, old, you know, 2001, 2003, TxDOT had some money to dedicate to corridors, and they did so. But what happened is um, about oh seven oh eight, the money dried up. Texas's solution was, in the engineering world, was what we call Super 2. People say, well, what is a Super 2? Well, it's because we don't have the money to build four lanes divided. Maybe we can get by with building a three-lane highway, an existing right-of-way footprint. And that basically is uh, where you have a passing lane. And you see these signs, passing lane next two miles flipping the passing lane. That's called a super two. It's kind of a poor boy's way of getting it built until we can figure out we get the money to four lane divide. So some of this Texas highway, even the ports to plains is like that. But in 16, game changed for Texas. The game change was, is the voters voted Prop 1 and Prop 7. Prop 1 is oil and gas severance. Prop 7 is sales tax. Both of those propositions put money out of those two funds into the highway fund. And overnight, Texas's highway program doubled in construction, 10 year program. $35 $35 billion went from 35 to $75 billion in one year. We dusted off the Texas trunk system, said, let's look at these corridors again, and maybe we can start building those corridors again. Something else happened. The Ports Plains Alliance, that organization, said, you know what? Let's stop thinking about this just as a four-lane divided. Let's go interstate. And lo and behold, when the study came out, that was a game changer, game changer for Dot, because the numbers were incredibly good for us to build a future interstate on this long corridor. For example... billion increase to your GDP, 21% reduction in accidents, $4 billion in travel cost savings. All that lost money that they would have had and lost savings, this interstate will save them. That's just the beginning of the positive things on this corridor. If you looked at the whole corridor from Laredo to uh, Canada, 12 of the nation's top 20 feedlots sit on our corridor. 50% of the nation's cotton is on our corridor. Our corridor actually includes the New Mexico portion of it that goes from uh, Clayton over to Raton. March of 22 last year, through the appropriations bill, we were able to get a federal designation for future interstate on the Ports Plains Corridor, and that was a game-changer with Dot. Last time around, you know, I just assumed it was going to be I-27. They came back and said, Lauren, you can't just assume that. You have that leg that swings over to Midland. You got the big spring leg that comes up there, and you have this leg up there in Dumas that splits, goes up into Oklahoma, and it stopped at the Oklahoma border. People say, Lauren, why does it stop at the Oklahoma border? We wanted to carry the interstate designation through Oklahoma on the Ports Plains route, Boyce City, over into Colorado. That's Lamar, Colorado, over to Lyman, Colorado. That's the tie-in at I-70. But what happened was is we ran into some difficulties in Colorado with the DOT. They weren't quite there yet trying to solve their congestion issues on the front range, I-25, Colorado Springs, Denver. So they wouldn't sign on to it. Oklahoma DOT wanted it. You know, They only have a few miles that runs through their panhandle that's part of the corridor. New Mexico wanted it real bad, too. They signed on. So you got a future designation. And this time around, this last year, we've been working on trying to go ahead and put the number on it. And we did get it on the senatorial side. We got it through Consent Agenda, I-27, but we also have an I-27 North that goes north up here up to Dumas. We had to split the Midland-Odessa, Big Springs route, kind of like you do uh, Dallas-Fort Worth. You have an I-35 East and I-35 West. You got to have an I-27 East and an I-27 West. But we were able to get that done. Now it comes down to just building this thing out. That's kind of our goal over the next 10 years is to start pushing Out to come up with the funding to you know, build different segments of it.
0: The economic benefits of this program are clear. For the smaller subset of the population that's concerned about greater connectivity to Mexico for one reason or another, what do you have to say to them? Those topics come up. You improve the access to Mexico. Then you do that, you open up the doors for bad
1: things. And that's True we can't deny that, 60% of Texas U.S. trade export-import program that is running through those three ports, Laredo, Eagle Pastel, Rio, which the Port City Corridor has. This is the United States. 50% of the nation's exports, imports through Mexico is running through those three ports. What we're saying is we've got to save the money. We've got to reduce the congestion at the ports. On top of that, 1,300 people a day are moving to Texas. But if you build this interstate through this western United States and through Texas here, then you basically are offering opportunities for population tomorrow to decide, you know what, I'm going to choose Lubbock, Texas. It has access to everything. But this connects me to 20, this connects me to 10, and businesses will continue to thrive and grow up here. And we cannot forget, we are still about feeding
0: all this population. It's about a matter of getting this produce where it needs to get to. Over the next couple years, where do you hope to see progress on Ports to Plains? Gentlemen, I have a
1: 10-year goal. we got three segments on this corridor in Texas we got to build. The southern segment from Laredo up to Interstate 10 at Sonora is an important segment because it can get all that congestion out of San Antonio and bring all that traffic over into I-10 that wants to go west to California. The way Texas is funding now, I believe we can get that done in 10 years. That's about $670 million a year each year added to that UTP. The UTP that I told you doubled in 2017 from 35 to $75 billion. This last August, the Highway Commission voted on a UTP. They, it's a rolling 10-year program, right? One year falls off, one year adds on. Their vote in August for their 10-year program was $100 billion. And next year, because they passed the electric vehicle tax, it's going to be, in my estimate, $110 billion. Then we can probably get that Southern Segment 3 built within a 10-year window. The Segment 2, which is from Sonora I-10 up through Midland-Odessa up to south of Lubbock, may take a little longer because it's the largest cost, $12.3 billion. But a lot of that's already four-lane divided. So it'll be a lot easier to get to interstate standard. Like, we're going to put some new Interstate 27 signs up, four miles at a time. It won't take much to get us to interstate standard to Tohoka. Same thing north up in Amarillo, going up there and getting that done. I will say this, though, real quick. You know, at some point, we're probably going to take a look at drone technology for hospital districts and how you go into rural health care out in rural parts of the United States, Texas, and New Mexico. We may be building our infrastructure that's not just highways, but it's actually drone pads to
0: interact with our highway system, too. So it's a bigger deal than just highway. Lauren, that's all the time that we have today. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you, Nate. Thanks for listening to Around Town. I'm your host, Nick Burkfeld The show was produced by Chuck Luck. Our guest today was Lauren Garduño, the president and CEO of the Ports to Plains Alliance. Join us next Friday morning at 9 a.m. on 89.1. For more information on Around Town or to listen to previous episodes, visit ttupublicmedia.org.